Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thank you guys for the kind welcome. Uh, I'm excited to be up here. So uh, I have many roles, uh, you know, a husband, um, a father. Gosh, I get the privilege of being uh, part of the membership here at, at Bethel. But the one I want to talk to you today is about my role as a father. I have five kids. Um, and so if you hear me, you know, stumbling over words or getting lost, you can understand why, because I have five kids. They're 10, 9, 7, 5, and almost 3. And, and I want to talk to you today about a picture that um, my son Mark gave me with his recent actions. And so that's his photo up there. Yeah, there he is. He's a mess. He's a cute mess. I love him desperately. But, um, you know, yesterday I'm wrapping up a preparation for this, and and I look at Mark and I see, okay, well, it's time to head to the changing table. And so we do that. He agrees to go with me. I say, hey, Mark, can I get you cleaned up? He takes my hand and we go and we walk into that room. And I put him up there. I clean him up. I'm about to take him down. And he says to me, no, no, no. I want to jump. Oh, okay. So I, I step back, you know, about six inches, something I'm comfortable with. And he says, no, get way, 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 way far back. And so I step out about another foot. I'm a foot and a half away. And that meets his requirements for far away. And next thing I know, he is jumping with the abandonment that only certain two-year-olds, not all two-year-olds, because all of mine didn't do that when they were two, but this one does. And he leaps like he is Superman. And if I don't catch him, he's going to belly flop on the brick floor. And we're going to be headed to the ER to get stitches and probably a dentist to get teeth pulled. But I do catch him, thankfully. And so it was a real positive experience for both of us, trust-building exercise. Um, and, and so I've, I learned, you know, and I've learned through the years of having five kids and, and, you know, we're still very much in the process that we have two flavors of children. We have what I call the leapers and the clingers. And Mark's a leaper. And I think he gets that from his mom. And if you know Amy, I mean, she's just a bubbly, optimistic, leap into life kind of gal. And I think they get the clingers from their father. And if you try to throw a clinger, they're afraid and they hold on to you. And so their arms are on you, but their body goes up and it's much more dangerous to, to try to catch a clinger. But I, I'm, the reason I bring this up is because God's constantly teaching me things about him, about me, through parenting. And I'm, I just want to say this, I'm an imperfect father. That's no flash, you know, no breaking news there, but um, I love my daughter. And I love my sons. You know, God, he calls me his son and he loves me more. Even when I act like they act toward him. And I help clean my kids up. He cleans me up all the time. I desire to be with my kids. I delight when I get to fellowship with them. Holding hands with Mark as we walk to the changing table. That was a delight. And God does the same with me. He desires to be with me. He delights in me. I get the, the, the task, the privilege of disciplining, and I do it imperfectly, inconsistently, but he does it perfectly every single time. And so I was thinking about Mark leaping off the changing table, and I looked at that and I thought, man, what an amazing picture of faith. Mark really did something there. That was quite an impressive jump. I wish I jumped like that. Because I'm kind of a clinger. I can be fearful. I'll be real open with you. If you ever have to preach, the second one's harder than the first one. 
because you got to do it again, all right? And so I'm, I've been clinging in the back there as I prepare to come up here. But I thought more about it. And my thinking on this, quite frankly, it's just wrong. Mark did something, but the something he did wasn't the awesomeness of the jump or the fact that he was completely parallel with the ground or that he was totally abandoned. The thing that Mark did that I want to aspire to is that he believed in me completely. He completely trusted his imperfect father. And that's what I want to do. I may not always jump in a real attractive way or in a real impressive way. I may cling sometimes. But it's not about my jump. It's not about the quality of the leap or how much distance, it's character, how consistent. Nothing about that. It's about the goodness of my father. And he says he will catch me because he is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my flesh, when it sees a list, wants to say, okay, I, I, somehow I've got to get sanctified. Oh, not just a little, all the way through. Oh man. My whole spirit, soul, and body. And I've got to be blameless when Jesus comes. All right, I just got to do, do, do. But God attached verse 24 for me and for you. The one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. Thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Man, a great promise. Man, a good father that we can jump to. And so that's what we're going to try to do today. To remember this. To remind each other that these things are true. To proclaim it while we're in this room. So that we can walk out these doors and be the church and proclaim the goodness of God, his faithfulness, his kindness, his mercy, his patience to a lost, dark, dying world. To tell them about a father that longs for nothing more than to adopt them. That they might be his sons, his daughters. So how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to look at the life of Hezekiah. You may not know who that is. He's a king of the nation Judah in the Old Testament. His story shows up three different times. God spends a lot of printer's ink on this man's life. And he doesn't do things by accident. So we can trust that he does this for a reason. That there are things to learn. And I find myself drawn to this story because Hezekiah lived at a time that is like ours. A time of apostasy. A time where our nation, this world, has rejected previously held beliefs. Rejected God in an outright way. Scorns him openly. And that leads to moral awfulness. Just turn on the news. I don't even have to provide examples. And that in turn leads to political anarchy. And I think we'll see that more and more. You know what was remarkable about Hezekiah? He lived during this time period. 
But he knew God's word. He believed it. And because of that belief, he acted on it. And you're going to see that he jumped very well. It's not the quality of his jump. It's something we can aspire to. But it's the goodness of the God that he followed and that he called others to. If I had to summarize his life, I'd look at 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 through 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. You know what's interesting, what follows that? Let all that you do be done in love. Because that's what a man of God, that's what a woman of God does. And so we're going to look at his story. But before we do that, we're going to review, not in detail, but at a real high level, the body of scripture that he had available. And hopefully by doing so, demonstrate that it has always been by grace, through faith, that God saves people. It's never changed. It's always been the way he does it. It's also going to provide for us context to the account of his life. And hopefully, along the way, we'll be encouraged. Now, the benefit of this is you guys get to have me the second time. So, little warning here. We're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture. And I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture. I'm just going to ask you guys to trust, and I'm going to have to trust in the promise that all scriptures God breathe. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the men and women of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so it might be dry, but hang with me, and I trust that the Spirit of God will make it real to us all. So we've been talking about falls. That's where we'll go next. The fall that got us here. Genesis 1.31. God's created the earth. And his summary statement is made in verse 31 of chapter 1 of Genesis. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. But God desires to be in a loving relationship with us and love always has a choice and so he extends that choice to Adam and to Eve and in Genesis 3 here's the result of that an enemy shows up he questions the word of God he misquotes the word of God and a lot of trouble follows from that in Genesis 3, 1, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say? Did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, that is the same strategy that we get hit with all the time. Did God really say? He's ripping you off. He's not trying to set you free. And in verse 6, we see how Eve responded. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And here's the amazing thing. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And he's been silent the whole time. And we're going to get into Hezekiah's life, but man, he's not a man who stood by and was silent when God's word was being questioned or misquoted or wrongly applied. And so in Genesis 3, verses 7 and 8, their eyes are open. They realize, oh my gosh, we're naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? You know, God wasn't asking for information when he asked that question. And if you go back and read the account, there's three questions to Adam, there's one to Eve, and he knows what has happened. I think this is an opportunity for confession, for repentance. He's patient. And so in the very first time that a holy God interacts with sinful man, we see his unchanging character on display, which 2 Peter 3.9 tells us about. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so he asks, where are you? We don't have the story of what would have happened if Adam had said, hey, here's what happened. And, and thank God we don't. Because man, how hard would that be to live with? But God is patient. And the rescue plan is announced even as sin happens. It didn't surprise God and he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so it's the offspring of the woman. You know, gosh, the Ellis's last week, they asked me to teach the middle schoolers. And so we talked about how babies come. And on a real high level, we said, well, okay, so you take a little piece of mom and a little piece of dad, and you put them together, and you get a baby, right? But here, it just says the offspring of the woman. Well, that doesn't make sense. Even now, God is foreshadowing that the Lord himself will give us a sign. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, God with us. You know, the book closes, the book being the Bible, how it opens. Revelation 13, 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. But all whose names who have, not, uh, who have been written in the book of life, and they're there because the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. And that's a very loose reading of that. My apologies. But the takeaway point is that the lamb was slain before the creation of the world. God knew. God had the plan. He was ready. He was ready. And even in this account, we have the method of rescue suggested. Because I noticed as I look out there, and we're now two for two on services, nobody showed up in fig leaves. There's not one of you who's wearing fig leaves. You know why? Because they're inadequate coverings. They don't cut it. They don't cover up our flesh. They don't protect from the heat or the cold or the sun or anything else. And so in Genesis 3.21, God does this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And notice that they were garments of skin. And here's the deal. If you have to give up your skin to make a garment, 
you die. The animal has to die. Its blood is shed. But in doing so, a temporary, adequate covering is made. And who does that remind you of? Jesus. Jesus. You know, the Bible goes on. And in Isaiah, it tells us, hey, we, we still try to put on fig leaves. We still try to cover up with righteous acts. We still try to make our flesh presentable. But God says this about those righteous acts. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags, used, shriveled up, bloody rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. We can't ever adequately cover ourselves. But the Bible continues. And in Galatians 3.27, it says this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And I stand up here, and I got nothing to wear. But because of what Jesus has done, and I put him on. And I walk in his righteousness. And I am restored to the place that I was always meant to be in relationship with the God who made me and who loves me. And so God continues this story of redemption. He continues to pursue despite men continuing to run away. And he reveals more and more and more about the coming seed of the woman. And it's summarized nicely by Dr. J. Vernon McGee like this. God turns from the race of mankind to one individual. And from that individual, he's going to bring a nation. And to that nation, he will give his revelation. And out of that nation, he will bring the Redeemer. And apparently, this is the only way that God could do it. Or let me put it like this. If there were other ways, this was the best way. And we can trust God to do the thing which is best. And so the Bible tells us who that one man will be, and his name's Abram. And it means exalted father. It's just one problem with Abram. He doesn't have any kids. So imagine if every time you introduce yourself, you said, hi, my name's exalted father. Oh, how many kids do you and your wife have? Well, none. But God makes a tremendous promise to him in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you, a land. I will make you into a great nation. It's gonna make him a nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The third part of that covenant, a land, a nation, a blessing. The account continues in Genesis 15, 6. It says this about Abram. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Abram believed God. It's belief in God that has always saved by grace through faith. The account continues and Abram is a very practical man and I love this about the Bible in Genesis 15, 8, he says this, but Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of these things? Put it in paper. 
sign on the dotted line. And you know what? That's exactly what God does. We don't have time to go there today. But he, he, he goes through the process that two men would go through if they were going to sign a contract. And we've been talking about faith a lot this morning. It's, it's very commonly misconstrued. It's very easily misunderstood. And it's presented as this thing where you're just blind and you walk off and like, well, I hope something happens good. But that's not what it is. It's based on facts. Facts that have an authentic impact and that transform hearts. And so you can go back to Genesis 15, 9 through 21 and see where God signs the contract. It's like going to the courthouse, getting the notary, and he puts it on the dotted line for Abram. But you know what's interesting? He doesn't have Abram sign anything. If you go back and look at the count, Abram's paralyzed in sleep. He's put aside, and God's going to go through the signing process, but Abram's not going to do a thing because Abram is not promising to do a thing. He just believed God. That's all, that God would keep his promises. And in talking to Abram, he talks about the nation that will come from him. In Genesis 15, 14, and 16, and he says this, the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And I mention this for a couple reasons. One, because God keeps his promises and thank God that he does. Because if he keeps his promises to Abram or Abraham, he's gonna keep his promises to me and to you and the promises that he makes in his word. And it is a firm foundation that we can build our life upon. But I also love this because if you listen closely, there's a delay of 400 years for a number of reasons, but one of those is that the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And again, we see on display that God wants everyone to come to repentance, even Amorites. And you're gonna find out later, these people do some horrific, horrendous things, including making their, their infants pass through the fire as a part of a worship of an idol. But God loves them. And he gives them 400 years. He's so good. He's so patient. He's so kind. And so you read through the rest of Genesis and God's word proves true. Abram, exalted father without a son, becomes Abraham, father of many. Father to Isaac, who has another son named Jacob. And Jacob and his family come to live in that land that's not their home. It's Egypt. And in Genesis 46, 27, it says 70 souls went down into Egypt. And by Exodus 1, 7, they've become exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. And God is a promise keeper. Two-thirds of that promise has been kept. Right? They've become a nation. They've already been a blessing it's going to be developed further. But they're still slaves in Egypt. They're not in the land. Which brings us to the book of Exodus. Where God redeems them from slavery. They set out for this promised land. And it culminates. The book of Exodus. The, the peak of the mountain. Is the Passover. 
So you could summarize the Exodus as this battle between the gods. And, and Israel is not honoring God at that time. They're, they're just idol worshipers like the Egyptians are. And so God says, all right, you know, get the ring together. Let's have a fight. Let's, let's do this. Let's see who is God. And each one of the plagues is an attack on the Egyptian gods. And he's mocking them because they're not gods. The thing's made with men's hands. And in Exodus 11.1, 1, we get the knockout blow. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that the men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord God made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And we'll hear more about this knockout blow. But before we keep going, let's pause again. We see another great principle here. Israel's instructed to collect gold and silver from Egypt. Why? God's going to fight the battle. God's going to win the victory. His people are going to get the possessions. And it shows up over and over and over. He does everything. We get the good things. I just believe him. You can continue down into Exodus looking at verses 4 through 10 and it talks about how the firstborn of man and beast belong to the gods of Egypt. And the Lord is going to claim them for himself. And he's going to make a clear distinction between the children of Israel and the Egyptians. And the distinction is not going to be because one people's lovely and nice and the other people isn't. Or one people has done better than the other because they're both lost. They're both alienated from God. They're both subject to the things that happened in the fall. The difference is going to be the blood of the lamb. See, what the Israelites were to do, they were take a lamb. They were to take care of it. And on the 14th day of the first month, they're to take that lamb and they're to, they're to slaughter it. And its blood is poured out. And that lamb is roasted over fire. It's consumed with bitter herbs and they're to take that blood with a, a branch of hyssop, a plant in that land and they're to appropriate it. They're to put it on the door. And God says, I'm gonna see the blood and I'm gonna pass over. It has nothing to do with you. It's the blood of the lamb that is going to cause me to pass over that home. And in, in the words of Dr. McGee again, it's one of the most eloquent portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. And we'll look a little more at it later. So Israel is taken out of Egypt. The exodus occurs just as God promised. But their arrival to the promised land is delayed. And you can read that story in the book of Numbers. It comes down to unbelief. Belief, man, great things happen when we believe. Unbelief, really sad things happen. And an entire generation dies because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3.19 has this summary statement about them. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Nevertheless, the theme continues. The people flee, God pursues. The people flee, God pursues. The people rebel, God pursues. You know, in this, go back and read Numbers and 
and the proverb that comes to mind is there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Contrast that with Jeremiah 6.16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But you said we will not walk in it. We keep circling back to it, but God just asks you to believe him. To ask where that good way is. To walk in it. And he has announced that to us. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But we've been talking about how God's a promise keeper, so this rebellious nation, man, they arrive in the land. And they arrive under the direction and the leadership of Joshua. And they go through, and they're supposed to exterminate would be the word. It's the word I think of. The Canaanite people, but they don't do it perfectly. They don't obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart, as we say in my house. And consequences happen. Obedience is always attached to time. If you don't do it right away, all the way, with a happy heart, hard things happen. And you can look in the book of Judges for those hard things. In Judges 1.1, the people are saying, after Joshua dies... They ask the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? They're coming to God for direction, for leadership, because he is their king. But this is how the book closes. Josh, Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone chose a Proverbs 14, 12 life. And death reigned because of it. Which brings us to the book of Samuel, who's the last judge and the first prophet. And he's an old man, and he installs his sons as judges, but they don't fear God. And because of this, the people demand a king. But they already had one. God was their king. And God makes this comment in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 8. But when they said, give us a king... To lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected as their king, but me, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And it's hard stuff. Heavy taxes. Forced labor. What seems right doesn't bring blessing. But know this, it's no surprise to God because way back in Deuteronomy 17, he gives provisions for the king. And it can be boiled down into four things. He shouldn't multiply horses or make the people go back to Egypt for them. He shouldn't multiply wives so his heart's not turned away from worshiping God. And he shouldn't accumulate much silver and gold. But there was one thing he is to do. When he takes the throne... Deuteronomy 17, 18. He's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. It is to be with him. He's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And just put in a parenthesis here. 
Hezekiah definitely does this. And we're going to read about some of the amazing things that he does. But this is the thing that's behind it. And because of that, he doesn't consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or the left. And his descendants will reign for a long time over his kingdom in Israel. I'm reminded of Psalm 20, verse 7. It says this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And if you think about warfare back in the day, if you had a chariot and you had a horse, I mean, it's on. Let's go. I don't care who it is. We got a chariot and a horse. It's like me showing up in an Abrams tank. I'm not really worried about who I run into if I'm in that. But the psalmist says, hey, you know, some people trust in those things. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And clinging to God's word, reading it daily, having it be precious to you, and that's how you get to that place. And so we're into the period of the kings. And we heard about Saul last week. We heard how he was rejected by God. No heart for God. I always remember the Sunday school lesson I learned way back when, which should be an encouragement to those of you with the red t-shirts on, that man, things stick, because I can always remember this. Saul, no heart for God. David, whole heart for God. Solomon, half heart for God. It's a great way to remember that. But David was a man after God's own heart. Solomon, man, he stumbled. He stumbled because he didn't cling to and obey God's word. He goes, oh, for three on the negative commandments given to the king. He gets 12,000 horses. That's a lot of horses. He gets 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a ton. And his annual gold revenues are about a billion dollars. That's just the gold. And because of this, his heart is led astray. The kingdom is divided. And you get two, a split, a north-south split. In the north, there's 10 tribes. And they're going to have 19 kings. And they're going to go over on kings. Meaning not a one of them is going to be a good king. In the southern kingdom, I mean, it's a good batting average. But it's not very good if you're evaluating kings. They go 8 for 20. About 400, I hope. Can't do math on the spot. And so of this list of eight, we're going to find that Hezekiah is numero uno. He is the top dog. He's the number one performer. He's the MVP. He's the all-star. And that's why we're going to look at his life. I already mentioned this story shows up three times in Scripture. At least I think it did. And in total, it's, gosh, it's 11 chapters. I mean, it could be its own book in the Bible. God spends a lot, lot, lot of time talking about this man. And at this point, we'll pause and talk about something called the law of recurrence or recapitulation. And what this means, it's the policy of the Holy Spirit in giving the word of God to give a great expanse of truth to cover a whole lot of ground and then circle back around and select certain sections that he wants to really focus in on, to enlarge upon, and to have us notice. It's like the difference between a telescope and a microscope. And so we're going to see this in Hezekiah's life. The telescope being 2 Kings chapter 18 and ensuing chapters. The microscope being 2 Chronicles starting in chapter 29, 30, 31, 32. We're not going to cover all that, so don't panic. 
You know, the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And that's why there's value in studying this. God just didn't put it in there to be history. I mean, he wants us to look at this. And it's dry. And now's the part where I start reading a lot. So just hang with me. All right? Because in this are examples, things we should aspire to, and warnings. Man, things we should just wake up, sirens go off, avoid, do not do. So with that, if you'll turn to 2 Kings 18, chapter 1, we'll start reading. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Let's just pause there and make some observations, some statements about what we just read. So first thing, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz. Ahaz is his father. Ahaz is the king before him. It's going to help us to know what the kingdom was like when he inherited it from his father. What is the state of things? And to find that, you're going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 2 through 4. And I'll read it for us. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the king of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. If there was an idol, Ahaz is like, I want some of that action. That's where I'm going. That's where life is. That seems real right to me, and I'm going to chase after that. Even sacrificed his son in the fire. Heartbreaking. Horrible. A one-word summary of the kingdom that Hezekiah inherits. How'd you like to be that guy? I wouldn't. Talk about trying to do a corporate turnaround or be the CEO that comes into a disaster. Man, that is a disaster. That is overwhelming. That's impossible. But we're going to see with God that, man, he does the impossible really, really well. He takes dead things and he brings them to life. And so in 2 Kings 18, 3 through 8, we see kind of that similar summary. Now we're reading about Hezekiah again. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan, a name to note. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord. He did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. What a contrast Ahaz and Hezekiah. You know what's funny? The historical circumstances of their kingdoms, they're really quite similar. See, the major world player at this time is this nation called Assyria. And they're 
They're like the original terrorists, okay? And in their inscriptions, it's, it commonly starts with, I, I, I conquered, I killed, I burned, I destroyed. And that's how they start their historical narratives. And these are bad dudes, terrifying armies. Terror was a major part of their strategy. And God says, hey, you know what? This nation's actually my rod. To use the terms we would use today, it's his belt. He takes off and he spanks his son Israel with. Isaiah 10, 5 through 6 says this, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. And even this terrorist nation is under the sovereignty of God. It's all part of his plan. It's all part of him keeping his promises. It's all ultimately for the good of the nation, Israel, and good for us. And so there's this contrast. And, and we see King Ahaz living in this place called Gehenna. And this is what I mean by that. You see, human sacrifice was particularly associated with the Ammonite god Molech. And this was absolutely condemned in the law. Three different places. It was practiced especially in this place called the Hinnom Valley, just south and west of Jerusalem, a place that later came to be known as Gehenna. Two words put together, the word for valley and the name of this place. And there were always fires burning there. Why? One of them was because of the sacrificial orgies. The other was because garbage was burned there. And so later on, you see Gehenna become a synonym for hell. So Ahaz, given a pretty similar set of circumstances, chooses to live in hell, to reject, flee, and totally run away from God. Hezekiah, on the other hand, given a similar set of circumstances, has an absolutely blessed existence. And becomes somebody that the Spirit of God chooses to put down, not once, not twice, but three times in the Bible. Why is that? It's important for us to think about and, and answer this question. Well, what comes to mind as I think about it is Psalm 1. And it says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And it's clear that Hezekiah has rejected the counsel of the wicked. But I want to look at the second part of that psalm. See, my eyes are drawn to fruit. I love fruit. Tastes good. I want fruit in my life. And what I mean by that is the good things that, that God lists here in, in 2 Kings 18. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed high places. He smashed sacred stones. He cut down Asherah poles. He broke into pieces Nehushtan. Let's just pause here for a second. Nehushtan. It's the bronze serpent that's mentioned in the book of Numbers. When the people disobey and serpents, fiery serpents come out and they're biting the people and they're dying. And God tells Moses, hey, make a serpent of bronze. Lift it up. And if the people look in faith, they're going to be saved from the venomous serpents, from the fiery serpents. 
that God had sent as judgment for their rebellion. But this had gone from this object of faith that later Jesus uses to talk about himself, that he's going to be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. In John 13, 14, 15, and 16. That's chapter 3. It's going to go from this symbol that Jesus uses to refer to himself to this thing that has become a stumbling block, an idol that they are worshiping. And so if we have stands here, if we have traditions, if we have things that we do just because that's how we do things, and they're stumbling blocks, let's burn them up, right? I mean, let's go. Let's be about him and his business. And there's no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. So like I said, man, I want, I want fruit like that in my life. You're here today. I think you may want fruit like that in your life. But a tree doesn't make fruit by getting out a hammer or a book of ingredients or baking or doing all that. A tree brings out fruit because of its nature. What does a tree do? Where does the energy for fruit come from? Well, it comes from the roots. The roots are the reason for the fruit. And what were the roots that were listed in that section of scripture we just read? Well, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. He held fast to the Lord. He didn't cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. And even roots are worthless without water. And the commands the Lord had given Moses, man, that's the water in Hezekiah's life. The water is the commands of the Lord. It's the thing the roots lay hold of and it's the thing that gets fruit bearing in its appropriate time according to the nature of the tree. Isaiah 55, 10 through 12 says this, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, he says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And it continues and it talks about how you will go out and joy and be led forth in peace. Peace. And the mountains and hills are gonna bust into song and the trees of the field are gonna clap their hands. And instead of thorn bush, there's gonna be pine trees and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. And this is also worth noting. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. God will be made more famous because we have been rescued, because his word has gone forth to rescue some, to judge others. And it's all about him and his glory and his fame. But back to Hezekiah. Talking about his fruit, where did it come from? Man, he was with the Lord. He was with the Lord in his word. He didn't have the visible presence of God. We don't have it either. But we have his word. And through his word, he abides with the Lord. It's so important to stop and notice this because I've already mentioned it once, but man, I'm tempted to think that Hezekiah does all these things and that's what makes him great. But that's just not true. And he has a father who loves him and who will always catch him. 
I think we could maybe flesh this out a little more by looking at the opening verse. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father David had done. And if you walked up to David and said, David, welcome to heaven. How did you get here? He's not gonna start listening out, well, you, you ever heard of Goliath? Let me tell you about that one, all right? Or, you know, I, then I did this, this, this. Because he's got this amazing list of things. He's got his own group called the Mighty Men, which is like the coolest thing in Scripture. Man, I wish I could be a Mighty Man. They do some incredible stuff. But that's not Dave, what David's going to say. His response is captured in Romans 4, 6 through 8. David says the same thing it says in that verse. When he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And this is what he says. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. They said, I'm a sinner. But man, I've been forgiven and my sins are covered. And because of that, I'm happy. I'm blessed. And it will never, ever count against me. And there's just some incredible truth in this story. But you, you, you know, you read something like this and it can get tedious. You gotta dig you got to go to the mines, as it talks about in Proverbs. you got to get those nuggets out. And, and ultimately, it's not even us who does it. It's the Spirit of God who's doing it in us. He's so good to us. So now let's see the law of recurrence in action. We just read the Cliff's Notes, right? If anybody still knows what that is. But the, the short version that gets you the summary story, 2 Kings 18, man, about eight verses, if you go back and count. 2 Chronicles in what 2 Kings covers in eight verses, it's going to take three whole chapters. Chapter 29, chapter 30, chapter 31. You see some negative actions of Hezekiah where he's breaking, he's tearing down, he's destroying. Man, in chapters 29, 30, and 31, you're going to see some positive things where he's opening up, he's healing, he's, wrong word, he's cleaning up, he's restoring things that were no longer being used. So let's jump in there. Second Chronicles 29, 1 through 2. And, uh, you know, we have these on the verse. And I just want to, uh, up on the screen, I just want to pause here. You know, if you ever get the chance to walk through this process, man, it is amazing what members of our body put together to make this happen. Like the words on the screen that you're about to see behind me. If you don't ever tell those people thank you, please do. You know, the guys in the back, the band, and the people watching your kids, man, they are serving that you might be built up, that you might be equipped to go and to do the ministry. Man, how awesome is it to be a part of the church as we bear each other's burdens? I'm distracted. We'll get back to Second Chronicles now. Verse one, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. So let's pause again. Notice who wasn't mentioned. Dad. No mention of Ahaz, his wicked father. But you know who shows up again? Mom and Grandpa. So apparently Abijah, his godly mother, and Zechariah, his godly grandfather, had a huge influence on this man's life. And, and, and man, I, 
You know, I know there's tons of opportunities as I look out to do that very same thing in your life with people that God has put in your orbit where he has planted you to be that fruit-bearing green tree that's attractive, that points people to him. Second Chronicles 29, verse 3. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened up the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. I didn't know the temple was closed. Well, yeah, it's closed. It's, it, you know, chain, master lock, nobody's getting in there. You have to go back to Second Chronicles 28, 22, and 25. And it says this in verse 22. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. And he goes chasing after all these different gods. Chasing after the one that will deliver him. Maybe if I perform enough, he says, to whatever God it is, I can please him and he'll bless me. He chases after the God of kings of Aram and Damascus and, and it doesn't work. They were to his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. And so you know what he does? The, very, the worst thing he could have done. He gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and he sets up altars everywhere else in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he builds high places to burn sacrifices and provoke the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. And, and, and we didn't mention this before, but it's worth mentioning. You know how I mentioned Ahaz makes his son to pass through the fire? That's not the translation I read. In the translation I read, it says that he sacrificed his son. But in a lot of them, it says that he passed through the fire. And even this guy, with his life, God loves him. And he loves him enough. And he's patient with him enough to, to give him time to turn to him. In fact, eternal separation from God is so bad that God allows a little boy, an infant, to pass through fire directly into his arms so that Ahaz has a chance to turn. So there's nobody on this earth that is not beyond God's love. I don't know what that group might be in your head. Oh, never them. Now those people, oh, they deserve it. Bull. It's just not true. God loves everybody. But back to 2 Chronicles, what a difference. Ahaz, in his time of trouble, he becomes more unfaithful. He locks the doors to the temple. Not Hezekiah. He's also presented with trouble. You know what he does? The very first action, the very first thing he does as a king, he says, we got to open these doors. And you know why? Because in Israel, there was one place to worship. It was Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was one place to worship, and it was the temple. And in the temple, there's a lot of articles of furniture, but at the very heart of it is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's this amazing picture of Jesus. No surprise. And on the top of it is the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would enter with the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and atone for the sins of Israel. Who does that remind you of? To ask the question again, Jesus. Who doesn't come into a holy place, holy of holies, with the blood of bulls or goats or lambs, but took his own blood into the holiest, holy of holies of heaven and presents it there as a sacrifice that atones for our sin forever. So it's very important that Hezekiah opens the door of the temple. It's important for us to remember that 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says this, for there is one God 
and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The one way to approach God. Second Chronicles 29, verses 4 through 5. He brings together the priests and the Levites. He tells them to consecrate themselves, to consecrate the temple, to remove all defilement. Second Chronicles 29, 6 through 7. He confesses national sin. Talks about how our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forsook him. Talks about how they shut the doors of the temple. He talks about his own family and how they've sinned. How they didn't burn incense. They didn't present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary uh, to the God of Israel. Second Chronicles 29.10. He says, you know what? I'm going to do something different. That didn't work. And if nothing else, I can just notice things that don't work. He says, now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. And he renews the Mosaic covenant. And what does that whole system point towards? That you would perform and make yourself right with God? No. That through the shedding of blood, there's the forgiveness of sins. Jump to Second Chronicles 29, 11. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, to minister before him, and to burn incense. And there's a fourfold encouragement in there. To who? The priests and the Levites. And these were men who by the very nature of their birth, they're to serve before God because of the family that they were born into in Israel. Same thing's true of me and of you if you're in Christ. Because if you're in him, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You have been born again. You are a new thing that was never here before when you trust Jesus as your Savior. And by virtue of this new birth, we are similarly to serve God. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people. Those of you who have trusted Christ as your Savior, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, I say this all the time, and it's just, it's, it's words that I need to correct, but we don't attend church, we are the church. And every week we gather here together, you know what we're doing? We're remembering, we're proclaiming God's goodness. That this might be a pastor's conference where this holy nation, this royal priesthood goes together, gets pumped up, and then goes out and does the work of the ministry during the week, wherever God has planted you. You, that it's the gifting that Ephesians 4.11 talks about. A similar process. It is he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Built up for works of service. So let's go. Let's be the church this week. Running short on time, which is a good thing because you have a lot of time this week. And you can go back to this and you can ask the Spirit of God, hey, Lord, open my eyes that I might see the wonderful things in your word. Where do I need to confess? 
Where have I broken fellowship with you as I've turned to idols instead of turning to you? God, how can you clean me up? I want to jump better, Lord, into your arms. And it's not me who does it. It shows up all throughout the New Testament. We'll look at one verse, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And this is what we are to be doing this week. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Things I do, but here's the key about it. To this end, I labor, but with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. God wants to work in and through you to reach a lost, dying world. Chapter 29 finishes with this, 2 Chronicles 29, 35, and 36. So the service of the temple of the Lord was reestablished. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. We don't have time to study it, but you know, chapter 30 is about the Passover. Man, we've already talked about it. That's a picture of Jesus. And as we deal with sin and we restore fellowship with each other and we're empowered as the temple, as the body of Christ to go and to do his work, you know what we're going to circle around? You know what's going to be the unifying thing? Man, not the Passover, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus. And good things happen. This man has a tremendous life. He knows God's word. He believes it. He does it. I'll read it again. It's worth reading. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Man, I want to be a man like that. Ladies, you want to be about that too. I'm going to pray for us. We'll close it out and go and be about his business this week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness for the examples you give us in scripture, God, for the life of Hezekiah, Lord, for the opportunity, for the invitation to be adopted as sons and as daughters, to be equipped to do your work, to be a light in a dark world. Help us to be about it. Help us to be a people known for the love of your word. God, not that we would just know it, but that we would do it and go and love others, invite others into relationship with you through your son Jesus. We ask all these things in his name.